I want you to take your Bible this morning and turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Uh, today we're going to begin a new series of messages, and the title of this series is Follow Me. Of course, you recognize those two words as being the words of Jesus, who invited a certain number of men to follow him to be his disciples, and his invitation extends through the ages to all those who would follow him and learn from him. And so what we're going to be doing in this series is we're going to be going through the Sermon on the Mount, which is a, a disciple-making message for us. Uh, and in the passage that we're looking at today, uh, beginning in Matthew chapter 4, we're going to read Matthew's account of events that led up to Jesus giving us this collection of teachings in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. And what Matthew does as he runs up to his presentation of this message, and what he does is he opens our eyes to see what Jesus meant to his meant by uh, speaking these words to his disciples in that day. And from that, I want us to see what this means for us in our day. Now, our study begins in Matthew chapter 4, and I'm going to start at verse 12. <clears throat> The word of the Lord. This is what we read, Matthew 4, verse 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali. Along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. A short time after being baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, Jesus was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. And while in the wilderness, he fasted and he prayed for 40 days before he began his public ministry. During that time, he was tempted by the devil, and he overcame that temptation by quoting the word of God and trusting the words of God instead of the lies of the devil. And he emerges from the wilderness victorious only to learn that John the Baptist has been arrested and murdered by Herod Antipas. Now Luke 9 tells us that Herod was quite intrigued by Jesus, he's been hearing these reports of the message that Jesus is proclaiming and the miracles that Jesus is performing. And so Herod is intrigued. His interest is piqued. And Luke chapter 9 tells us that Herod has this desire now to see Jesus. Jesus are, you, are you putting this together? Jesus has just heard that Herod Antipas has arrested John the Baptist and had him murdered and now the word gets around that Herod wants to meet with you. Now go back to our text and look at chapter 4, verse 12. There's a key phrase there. It says that Jesus withdrew into the wilderness. Now anytime you come across that word withdrew, you know what it seems to suggest to us. What it seems to tell us is that what Jesus is doing, he's withdrawing, so he's pulling away. He's going to move away from Herod, but our text actually shows us that Jesus does just the opposite. Instead of running away from Herod, the text tells us that what Jesus does is he moves right underneath the nose of Herod. The Bible tells us that after Jesus has been rejected by the people in his hometown of Nazareth, he changes his base of operation. The primary base of his ministry for those three years is going to be in a town called Capernaum. Capernaum is northeast of Nazareth, not a great distance, but Jesus relocates there. And it is there that most of his ministry will be conducted. 
Now, when he moves there, he is in a city that is along the, the Sea of Galilee. And by dimensions, let me just give you some perspective. The Sea of Galilee is only about 11 miles wide, and it's 17 miles from north to south. So its length is not a great deal. He's in a city... Capernaum, which is in the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee on the coast. Where is Herod's temple? Tiberias. Tiberias is also a coastal city on the Sea of Galilee. In fact, if you go to the very southern part and come up about a third of the coastline on the same west side where Capernaum is located, this is Herod's palace. So, you get the sense here? Jesus has moved to a place that by car is 10 or 15 minute drive. <laughs> well, at a leisurely pace. I mean, a tortoise-like pace. You or I could walk there in under three hours. Herod's got soldiers who have horses. They could ride there much quicker. And so, what we have is we have this picture And the picture that Jesus is sending to the world is this. I'm going all in. I'm bringing the kingdom in forcefully. Now, Matthew's gospel, we know, is noted as being one that is written to a Jewish audience. And that should be pointed out for a congregation that I believe, if not 100%, is mostly Gentile. It it gives us some appreciation for what we're reading when we read Matthew's account of the life of Jesus and his teachings. And so what we notice right away is we notice that in the passage that we read, that Matthew quotes a portion of Isaiah 9 in verses 15 and 16 of uh, Matthew chapter 4. And Matthew is taking for granted here that his audience knows the context, the greater context of Isaiah chapter 9. He doesn't quote all of Isaiah chapter 9. He just quotes a few verses. You know why? Because his audience that is Jewish has heard this read many times. They've heard their rabbis teach about it. And yes, many of them have actually memorized this passage of Scripture. So he doesn't, he doesn't quote all of it. But as soon as they hear the words, their minds run to the setting. Their minds run to the context of Isaiah chapter 9. And so I want to read that for you right now. I want you to look with me in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. It says this. This is Isaiah's prophecy. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times, when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You've enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you, and they rejoice at harvest time, and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke. And the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the, blood sh- and the bloody garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast. His dominion will be vast. And his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of his father, David. And over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and what? Forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. I'm going to say this probably more than once in this message. But you do understand that nothing in the text is there by accident. 
virtually every phrase, every word, every picture we are given is given there for the purpose of pointing to Jesus and the message that he brings to us. And I want you to notice the connection between Isaiah chapter 9 and Matthew chapter 4. Remember in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus tells us that, I mean, uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus has relocated to the city of Capernaum. You know where Capernaum is located? Are you ready? In the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. So he doesn't just randomly pick a passage. He goes directly to one that applies to the people in this region. A prophecy that Isaiah has given in Isaiah chapter 9. And Isaiah chapter 9, 2 is making reference to the Assyrian, the Assyrian invasion of Israel in which Assyria, the greatest power in the world, basically crushes their enemies. And in 733 B.C., what we have is we have Israel divided into two kingdoms, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. Southern kingdom is Judah. The northern kingdom is Israel. Capernaum would be in the northern kingdom, Israel. Israel has gone to pagan gods. After Solomon's reign, they divide the kingdom, and what happens is, is the people of God are somewhat faithful to God for a little while, but in the north, they kind of fall off the deep end. And they become a very pagan nation, worshiping other gods. And God wants to get their attention. These are his chosen people. He wants to call them back to himself. By the way, that's what happens when you as a Christian follow after something else other than Jesus. And it may give you a sense of pleasure. It may be something that gives you some sense of fulfillment for a little while. But then you'll begin to feel what? The tug of the Holy Spirit on your heart as I do? And God, who is a jealous God, who loves us with a jealous love, says, oh, no, I'm not going to share you with anything. And then the misery begins to set in. And whatever it comes to us, thank God it comes. The Holy Spirit comes into us, and the Holy Spirit begins to pull us down. That's what is happening to these people. But they don't respond to God. They're stiff-necked. And so God uses the Assyrian Empire to come against these people. And it is this northern territory, Naphtali, and Zebulun, which suffers the most of the invasion of the Assyrians at the beginning. In fact, the Assyrians expand their territory by taking up three new provinces that dip down into this area of Zebulun and Naphtali. But what the prophet speaks about is he speaks about a deliverance. Now, it seems like a deliverance that is almost impossible to accomplish. Why? Assyria is the strongest power on the face of the earth. This is weak and defeated Israel. They've been crushed by, by the Assyrians. And so the oracle alludes to something that we read in uh, Isaiah chapter 9. And we read about it in the fourth verse. It makes reference there in the fourth verse of Isaiah chapter 9 to the day of Midian. Can I say it again? Nothing is in the text by accident. When he speaks of the day of Midian, what he is calling attention to is he's calling our attention to that time in Judges chapter 6 and 7 where Gideon with 300 men and the power of God defeats the awesome Midianite army that has come against God's people. Matthew is reminding, you see, his Jewish audience that this land, this land has been humbled in the past. And what he's saying is, Zebulun and Naphtali, this area in which we are right now, haven't we learned our lessons about pride and arrogance? 
I mean, God taught us our lessons. And just as Isaiah in his day announced a new day is dawning, Matthew points his readers to Isaiah chapter 9 in order to send the exact same message. Jesus arrives in Matthew chapter 4, and Matthew says, Here we are again. A new day is dawning, and a new opportunity has presented itself to us for us to become all that God intends for us to be. And in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 4, now going back there with me, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus takes up the mantle of, and I want to be careful here, but I want to say his rabbi, his teacher. Well, I didn't know Jesus had a teacher, John the Baptist. And what message does he proclaim? It's the same message John the Baptist proclaimed. You take uh, Matthew chapter 3 verse 17 and you lay that over against what you read here. In Matthew chapter, uh, uh, excuse me, Matthew 3 verse 2 and then in Matthew 4 verse 17. Look at those two verses and you compare them side by side. You've got what, what John the Baptist preached. And what Jesus preached, they are the exact same message. Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. (laughs) This is why when Herod's interest, uh, when he becomes intrigued about Jesus, when he wants to see Jesus, do you remember what the reports were in Luke's gospel? It tells us that the reports were, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. Where do they get that idea? Jesus is preaching the same message that John the Baptist preached. They say, John's been raised from the dead. Now, I want to read on in Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 18. Look at it with me. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother, Andrew. Now, they were casting, casting their net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I'll make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and they followed Jesus. In Jewish schools of learning, at a certain age, you would apply for further training under a rabbi. And what you would do at a certain age is you would approach a rabbi and you would request further training by this rabbi. Now, this rabbi would review the resume and interview the applicant who's coming to him, and that rabbi would decide to himself, you've got what it takes to follow me. But if at any point, at any point in that time after you have been selected to sit under the training of this rabbi, if at any point you can't cut it, you don't have what it takes, the rabbi would say to you, you love God, you love Torah, but I'm releasing you and I want you to go home and I want you to follow your father. Your father has a trade. I want you to go home and I want you to learn the trade of your father. Let me tell you something else. You know that 99% of the people who applied for training under a rabbi were sent home to their father? (laughs) 99%. So this is not unusual. Peter and Andrew have not been chosen to continue their training in the rabbinic school. They've been sent home by their rabbi. Go home and learn from your father your trade. If your father applied that trade. Now the fact that these two are in a fishing boat. By themselves. 
unaccompanied by their father, sends a message to us. These two have been bar, bar mitzvahed. They're over the age of 13, but probably not 20. Teenagers, possibly. But what we see in the text is that they were old enough to be entrusted by their father to take the boat out by themselves. They've been entrusted with the nets. They've been entrusted with all that goes along with the industry of fishing. This is how we make our living. I'm sending you guys out. I'm turning it over to you. They have received adequate training. They are of sufficient age, and they can be trusted, and so they are sent out. Now, I want to read on in Matthew chapter 4, verse 21 and 22. Look at it with me. Now, going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with Zebedee, their father, preparing their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Now, what do we notice right away different about these two? They're fishing, but their father's in the boat with them. This tells us that they most likely have not been bar mitzvahed. They have not adequately learned their trade yet. They have not been released on their own to do fishing. It's quite possible that these two are 11 and 12 years old. This is not the first time for Peter, Andrew, James, and John to meet Jesus. In all likelihood, they've heard Jesus teach in that region. This is where they live. This is where Jesus has relocated his ministry. And we also know further that James and John, they're relatives of Jesus. And it's a very high likelihood that Peter and Andrew are also related to Jesus in some way. Why do we know this? It's because they're in this region around Capernaum. And in this region... In those days, what would happen is, is you don't have the mobility we have today. What you have is that families lived together in clans. They were grouped together. And so probably many of the people who were together in a town were related in some way, in one way or another. And so what you have here, if you look at the text, it's telling that here you have Jesus who, by the authorities, is looked upon as this rogue rabbi And what is he doing? He sees a spark in these four. He's saying, I've seen God at work in you, and I want you to follow me, and I want you to continue your training under me. Now look at verses 23 to 25, chapter 4. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria, so they brought to him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan River. Can I say it again? Nothing is here by accident. Matthew's gospel is the most Jewish of the four gospels. There are more Old Testament prophecies in Matthew's gospel than there are in Mark, Luke, and John combined. What does this tell us about Matthew's message? It tells us that Matthew's message, beginning with the genealogical record he gives in chapter 1, is to show that Jesus is the Messiah that he is in the genealogical line of David from whom the Messiah will come. He is saying to us, 
This is Messiah. He fulfills those prophecies that have been given about the one who is to come. But on top of that, beyond that, in addition to that, at the same time, Matthew's message, and over and over again we will see this, but beginning also with the genealogical record, Matthew wants to show us that Jesus is for the outcast. Why do we know this? Genealogical records are tracked through the fathers. But what do we notice about the genealogical record in Matthew chapter 1? Matthew includes two women. Very notably, the two women that he includes are who? Rahab. Who is a harlot. And Ruth, who is a Moabitess, a pagan. Both women adopt the God of Israel and become a part of the genealogical history of Jesus, the Messiah. Why does he do this? He does this to show us that Jesus is for those who are on the outside. Those who've been written off. Further evidence that Jesus the Messiah is for all people is given in Matthew's listing that we read in chapter 4, verses 23 to 25. The news about Jesus is spreading. It's spreading about his healing. And it says in verse 23, he's healing every disease and sickness among the people. No type of ailment was beyond Jesus' power to heal. Notice the various regions from which these people were coming to Jesus. Verse 23 tells us they were coming to him from Syria. Syria, that's north of the Israeli border. So the message is going northward. It's creeping across those geographical borders, boundaries, It's going into Syria. Syria is Gentile territory. Other territories are listed though. Look at verse 25. Just clicking them off real quickly. It mentions to us that the the other territories where people are coming to Jesus include Galilee. Well, Galilee is a large territory in northern Israel. It is the area that encompasses Tiberias, Capernaum, Nazareth, all of these cities are connected with Jesus in some way. And what we have is we have this territory of Galilee. Who does this tell us? This tells us that these are religious Jews by the most part. But also it includes the not-so-holy Herodians. These are coming to Jesus. And then there is uh, the Decapolis. Now, the Decapolis is a long territory that runs along the eastern side of the Jordan River. Jordan River, going north and south, connects, receives water coming into it from the north side, comes into the Sea of Galilee, flows out the southern side, heads down to the Dead Sea, which has no outlet. It's the lowest place on earth. It's shrinking, by the way. Little by little, it's losing its water. But when we're talking about the Decapolis, you know what we're talking about? We're talking about that region on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Israel occupies the West Bank, the western side. What we're talking about here on the eastern side of the Jordan River is what's modern-day Jordan, the nation Jordan. These are not Jewish people. These are pagans. They've heard about Jesus and they're coming to him. Then it says that there are also some who come to him from where? Judah. Judah is a territory in southern Israel. And Judah is made up of those who are 
well-trained, somewhat refined. This is the territory where John has done his baptizing in the Jordan River. Now let me just tell you something you may not know about, but Judeans and Galileans didn't like each other. In fact, they disdained one another. The Judeans who kind of had this ivory tower mindset, we're better than you. They looked at the Galileans and they considered the Galileans to be these kind of rough, redneck fanatics who lived up there in the North Territory. I mean, they didn't like each other so much that when they got around each other, they showed their disdain for one another by spitting on the ground at the feet of one another. What Matthew's doing here is he's giving us a picture, and the picture is this. These people who are coming to Jesus, they don't attend the same backyard barbecue. And the disciples, they see this mishmash of people coming to Jesus, and you know what their reaction is? Something's about to happen here. We don't know what, but whoa, what is going on here? Now look at Matthew chapter 5, 1 and 2. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and then he began to teach them. Verse 1, Jesus saw the crowd. What crowd? That people that we've just read about in verse 23 and verse 25, the Syrians, the Judeans, the Galileans, the people from the east side of the Jordan River, the northern part, beyond the boundaries of Israel. You've got all this mishmash of people together. Jesus sees these crowds coming to him and he heals them. And then the text says what? He went up on a mountain. I just recently went to Israel. I've never been before. It is true that you will see the Bible differently after you've gone there because you can visualize things that otherwise you just read about. The text here gives us a different impression than what is actually true about this particular area. I went to the Mount of the Beatitudes. Let me tell you a little bit about the Mount of Beatitudes. First of all, it's not a mountain. It's more like a large hill. And I brought pictures. <laughs> and I want to show you a picture of where Jesus is greeting this crowd. I want you to see the picture. Can we bring that up on the screen? Right here, you've got this desert area, but look at the background. You see that boat out there on the water? This is taken from the shore of this hill where the Beatitudes are recorded. Picture this. Looking out onto the water, you can see there. And now I want to show you a short video. And I mean it's short. <laughs> Pause it right there if you can. See the speaker down there? He is below the crowd. Looking up the hill and speaking to the audience. The reason is because with the sea at his back, he looks into the hill and the hill creates this amphitheater effect. An echo sound. Surround sound. So that when he speaks, all those on the hill can hear him speaking. Now this is the picture we have of the giving of the Sermon on the Mount. Is it not? 
I mean, that's the way I've always read it. But I want to show you something from God's Word. Verses 1 and 2 of Matthew chapter 4 says this. After Jesus sat down, who came to him? His disciples came to him. Then he began to teach them about what? The kingdom of heaven. Now let's talk about this. We've got to talk about this. In synagogues, a rabbi's teaching had three phases to it. First of all, there was a Torah reading. That's from the first five books of the Bible, the Decalogue, the writings of Moses. That was phase one. Phase two was he would open the scroll and he would read from the prophets. The prophets, whatever text that he read was carefully selected because that reading complemented the Torah. The scroll was rolled up and the third phase was the rabbi sat down. And then he began to do his teaching based on those readings. According to Matthew, in the order in which we are given the story, this is the beginning of Jesus' teaching. But we can be about 90% certain that Jesus did not speak all of this message to a large crowd all at one time. The Scripture tells us He taught His disciples. Who are His disciples? Peter, Andrew, James, John. What you have to understand about Matthew's gospel is he has a lot of source material. And what he does in Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is he weaves together all of this source material and what Matthew is doing in Matthew 5 through 7 is he's trying to say to us, this is, this is, you want to know what Jesus taught? This is what Jesus taught. And he carefully weaves together all these teachings of Jesus. And these teachings occurred over what? A three, three and a half year period that Jesus is teaching. And these things that we read about in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, when it comes to becoming a disciple of Jesus, these things that we read in these three chapters become what is an umbrella under which virtually all of Jesus' teaching can rest, come under these things that are mentioned in Matthew chapter 5. Now, I didn't say all of them, but most everything that Jesus taught can come under this umbrella. I mean, our mind runs to the last line in John's gospel. You remember what John said in John 21, 26? And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if every one of them were written down, I suppose not the world itself could contain the books that would be written. <laughs> so it's not all that Jesus taught. Matthew is weaving together these teachings of Jesus. He's saying, you want to know what Jesus taught? Here's his teaching. Now, classic technique for a Jewish rabbi would begin his talk with a list of things about which he is going to teach. And the topic in Matthew 5 through 7 is the kingdom of heaven. And whenever you come across that phrase, the kingdom of heaven, your mind needs to go to, he's talking about the rule and reign of God 
over his creation. Now, personally, what does that mean for you and me? If we are living in the kingdom of heaven, what it means for you and me is that we are experiencing the reign of God over our lives. He's ruling and he's reigning in our hearts. And so we read the Beatitudes beginning at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, or meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. The word translated blessed means happy. But because of our Western culture and our abuses and our misuse and misunderstanding of happiness, it's best for us when we translate this word, its meaning blessed, is to translate it as God's favor. So in verse 3, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew says that Jesus taught that God's blessing or God's favor is on the marginalized. You know who these people are that are listed here in the Beatitudes? They're the people that the world believes are missing out. These are the outsiders. Now, if you're poor, you're what? It's not a trick question. (laughs) Audience participation. If you're poor... You lack resources, right? Now here, what's he talking about? He's talking about spirit. If you're poor in spirit, you lack spirit. And so he says in verse 3, God's favor is on the poor in spirit. Verse 4 reads, blessed are those who mourn. You know, all our lives, what we've been taught about this passage is that these are things to which we should aspire. Now, I will admit to you that there are some of these things that can be chosen to which we should aspire. But that will only work for some of them, not all of them. It'll break down somewhere along the way. And one of the places I think it breaks down is right here in this statement. Now, what I think doesn't matter, I just want you to understand that the Word of God tells us, blessed are those who mourn. Does mourning sound like something that you should aspire to? I mean, if a person is mourning, they're in a tough place. And we're all going to be there at some point in our lives. We're all going to mourn. There are going to be times of mourning. What Jesus is teaching is this. God's favor is not on you when you get over it. God's favor is upon you while you are in it. Blessed are those who mourn. The Divine Conspiracy is a book written by Dallas Willard. It's... uh, It's a doorstop, okay, one of those doorstoppers. It's thick. It's a book on the Sermon on the Mount. It's masterful. Maybe the best work written on the subject. In his book, Dallas Willard puts it this way. God is for those who are spiritually bankrupt. God is on the side of those who are mourning. God's favor is on those who are humble. 
meek, and so on. Now, this is what I want to point out to you. There are, t- there are two halves to the Beatitudes. The first half begins at verse 3, 3, 4, 5, and 6. That's the first half. When you read the first half of the Beatitudes, what you're reading is you are reading a description of the internal difficulties that we experience in life. It's when we're in an emotional state or state of mind, when I'm poor in spirit, when I am mourning, when I'm brought low, when I don't have righteousness. Now I want you to notice the back half, beginning at verses 7 through 10, the back half are things we do in an effort to minister to those who are experiencing these difficulties. And if you've ever engaged in that kind of ministry, you know it's not easy. It can be difficult, even hard to be merciful sometimes. It's difficult, it's hard to be pure in heart. (laughs) Stop looking so spiritual. You know it is. It's hard, difficult to be a peacemaker sometimes. You get in the middle, try to make peace between two people who are at odds with one another. You know what will happen? You'll find both sides are shooting at you. Being persecuted for righteousness is a difficult, hard place to be. When we come across a list, now follow me here. When we come across a list that has a first half and a back half, what we're looking at here is what is called in literature a chiasm. This is a Hebrew literary technique where the first half and the back half pair together. So in a Hebrew chiasm, what you would have is you would have the first verse, which is verse 3, pairs with the last verse, verse 10. We move from the outside in. You would have verse 4 pairing with verse 9. You would have verse 5 pairing with verse 8. And then you have verse 6 pairing with verse 7. Now, in a chiasm, when you get to the center, this is the focal point. And so, considering this, I want to illustrate for you how this works. What do you get when you pair verse 10 with verse 3? This is the message. You'll be persecuted for ministering to those who are spiritually bankrupt. Do you see that? Now, I'm not going to walk through all of them. That would be a worthy exercise. But for the sake of time, let me just cut to the center. Verse 6 reads, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The Hebrew word for righteousness is the word sadiq. And it means right standing with God, but it means also a person who longs for righteousness to prevail. For good to prevail over all that is wrong and evil in the world. For justice to be done. That's righteousness. And what it says is that the appetite for righteousness is going to be completely satisfied in the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. I said just a moment ago, 
How difficult is it to be pure in heart? I'll tell you how difficult it is. Impossible. How's that for hard? You want righteousness? You want right standing with God? You got issues. Because you are not pure in heart 100% of the time. What is his message here? What is Jesus' message? What is the good news? The good news is the God who demands righteousness has already provided a means for us to have it through the perfect sacrifice of his son Jesus. And so what Jesus is saying through his teaching is this, quit trying to be a great rule follower. You remember what the small band of Jesus' disciples thought about the crowd? Whoa, we're about, we're about to have a throwdown. It's going to get crazy around here. This mishmash of people all getting together. These people don't ever mix with one another. Now we got them all here together at one time. We're about to have a breakout brouhaha right here on the spot. They're nervous. They're anxious about this crowd that is there. You know what Jesus is saying to his disciples? He says, all these people you think you know, you've categorized all of them. I mean, you've got a pigeonhole for every one of them. You think God is not with pagans. But I tell you, God's favor is on them. This is why Jesus came. I want to bring it a little closer to home. Let's take the story of Matthew, the gospel writer. Before he met Jesus, he's not Matthew, he's Levi. Who is Levi? Levi has betrayed his countrymen. He's a tax collector. He's crossed over to the dark side. He now works for the Romans who pay him a modest salary, and they tell him, look, if you want to take a little bit off the top, charge a little bit more and keep that for yourself, okay, you just make sure you hit your quota. Because we're coming to you, and whatever you don't take up, we're going to take from you. Jews don't like him. He's an outsider. You see him coming, they walk the other side of the street. He doesn't have friends. You talk about an outcast. But he meets Jesus. And Jesus transforms his life. And now he goes by the name Matthew. And we may have some Matts or Matthews in here, but for the rest of you, you may not know that the name Matthew means God's gift. The transformation in this man has been so spectacular by the grace and redemption of Jesus Christ that you have a man who has gone from Levi, a taker, to Matthew, God's gift. That's the focus of this gospel. Earlier we read these words in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. This is what we read there. Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. Good news. Good news. Good news. What is the good news of the kingdom? 
The good news of the kingdom is that God's favor rests upon those who've been written off. We are blessed because Jesus is a new king who brings a new kingdom. Let's pray. Let's stand together, may we? Father, I'm so grateful that I can testify to the truth of this passage. What a wreck my life was before Jesus. How you turned my life around and how, God, you gave me purpose and meaning for living. And you took a, a young man who was just really confused, had all the wrong priorities, and was doing pretty good at them until he realized that these things don't really fulfill the deepest longing of my heart. I want more. What is it? What am I missing? And I found Jesus, you're, you're exactly what I was looking for. And Father, even as I think about discipleship and following you, I think about my own life and following you, and I cannot think of anything, nothing, that I have given up to follow you, that you have not given me something infinitely more and better. Lord, that's what you do for us when we give our lives to you. Now today you hear me praying, listen, this is your time. Are you dissatisfied with what this world has to offer? Because if you aren't, just give it time. It'll let you down. There's got to be more to this life, this world, than just what we can see, taste, touch, feel around us. There has to be more, and there is. And it's found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So today, I want to invite you to open up your heart and just say to God in your own words, God, I'm sorry I've sinned against you by leaving you out of my life. I ask you to forgive me. And Jesus, I ask you to be my Savior, my Lord. Come in. Forgive me of my sin. I am turning from my sin right now to you, Jesus. I want to follow you. Did you pray that prayer? The Bible says if we will confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses. If you believe that in the heart, then you will gladly tell others about it. So today, I invite you to trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord. I invite you to let others know about it. And this morning, I will remain here at the front following our service. Other pastors will be here at the front to talk with you. Some of our deacons will be here in the area. And you want to tell somebody that you follow Jesus. Don't leave here without doing that. Father, I thank you for what you've done in our hearts. Thank you for what you did in my life. And thank you that what you did in my life, the joy that I experienced, the moment that I trusted Jesus, is just as real to me today as it was then. There are lots of other things, God, I've experienced. And the joy and the pleasure and the satisfaction that came from those things is long gone. But the moment I trusted you and turned to you and I said, Jesus, I'm following you. Lord, ever since then, the feeling of joy and the happiness and the rightness of knowing that I did the right thing has remained the same and intensified and grown. And Lord, I want to thank you for being a Savior like that for us. Father, we want to sing to you as we have never sung before. We don't want to sing words on a screen or we don't want to sing with our eyes. God, we want to sing with our hearts to Jesus. That's what worship is. 
And so now as we come to worship you in song and commitment, Lord, we ask that you would feel inside from us, you would feel from inside of us what we feel towards you right now as we sing.